The scripture reading from today also comes from Jonah chapter 1. Um, I, will I, I will read now from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he, he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. And now Pastor David will come up and preach the word of God. We um, we're planning to buy a pulpit. So. 
All right, we got there. We got there. Uh, before I open up God's word with you guys today, let me pray. Sovereign God, uh, we praise you and we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for saving us uh, by sending your son to come and die as our substitute and then raising him again so that we would also follow in his footsteps, that we would have a hope of uh, eternal life with you. I just pray that as, as I open up your word before your people today, Lord, that you would speak, that your word would speak. I pray that the soil of our hearts today would be fertile, it would be soft, that it would take the word and bear uh, good fruit. I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit uh, to open our ears uh, to what is being said. Uh, and to break down the walls of our hearts, uh, that we would come before you in humility and faith. So we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off with a little exercise today. I want to try jog some of our uh, childhood memories. So uh, what I want to ask you guys to do is to complete these phrases with me, okay? So... First of all, uh, Goldilocks and the, okay, maybe only a few people grew up with good childhoods. Uh, Jack and the, that's right, Snow White and the, Beauty and the, <laughs> yeah, all, all, all the wives were like, yeah, that's the one. Um, okay, how about Jonah and the, Whale, Fish, um, you know, we're, we're starting this new series off in Jonah today, uh, and that's really how we tend to think of this book, uh, primarily in terms of Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the fish. And yet, if you were really to read this book, uh, you would see that the fish only has two lines dedicated to it. Only two lines. That's not a lot. It's not really that important. <laughs> yet, our understanding of this book, our understanding of Jonah, it tends to skew towards and Jonah disobeyed God, and therefore he got swallowed by a fish, and then he obeyed God. Well, this book is actually so much more than that. It's so much more than Jonah and the fish or Jonah and the whale. And this morning and throughout the next four weeks, as we walk through this book, uh, we're going to see that there is a lot more to this book than just a reluctant prophet uh, in the belly of a fish. We're going to see pain. Uh, we're going to see bitterness. We're going to see unforgiveness. We're going to see all of these things in the life of Jonah. But the central message, the central theme from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 4 is the relentless grace of God. All right, the relentless grace of God. That's what we're going to see in this book. And I want to start off by saying, although many of us grew up listening to this story uh, as really a story, uh, it's more than just a story. It's more than just a fable. Uh, it's not a myth, but all of this actually happened. Jonah is referred to by name in Second Kings. Uh, Jonah's son of Amittai 
Uh, so this is a book that details uh, the history of Israel's kingship, nearly 30 kings, and he's mentioned by name. And 800 years actually after this account of Jonah uh, and you know the fish and the Nineveh and all that stuff, uh, 800 years after this time, Jesus himself would talk about Jonah as a historical figure, right? Jonah was a real person. He spent three nights in the belly of a fish. This really happened. And 2,800 years later, here we are, and we're still talking about this story. And I think it's because this story actually has deep implications for our lives and for God's church. And this story tells us glorious things about God. And here's why that matters for us. The more you know God, which this book reveals, the more you're going to want to turn to Him and trust Him. And the more you turn to Him and trust Him, the more prepared you will be to live a life of repentance and faith. And that's what the Christian life is really all about, repentance and faith. So this book, it's a very unique book uh, in the Old Testament. It's very short as uh, you might have noticed it's only 48 verses, and it falls into the category of the prophets. Uh, and there are major prophets and minor prophets. And uh, this one is a minor prophet, not because it's uh, less important, but because it's, it's just not as long as some of those bigger prophetic books. And what you get to see in nearly every single prophetic book is God speaks to the prophet, and his words through the prophet that forms really the content of that book, right? The prophetic message, except for Jonah. Have you noticed that? This book is a narrative. It's not really a story about the prophetic message. There's like two lines dedicated to what the prof uh, prophetic message is. This book is about the prophet. It's about Jonah, right? It's about Jonah, and he is a fallen prophet. He's a broken man. And in one sense, we can apply that to our own lives because we all fail too. We're all broken as well. And we disobey God. We run away from Him. We neglect Him. We rebel against Him. Yeah, this book points to the reality of the God who relentlessly pursues those who fail Him. Right? He's a God who is merciful and compassionate beyond anything that we could imagine. At the same time, in this book, we don't just see a God who relentlessly pursues us, who pursues Christians, but we also see a God whose heart is to relentlessly pursue the very people that we so often want to write off. Jonah is wanting to write off the Ninevites because they're bad news. They're really, really bad news. We're going to find that out. And his, his stance is basically mercy. He can go to any place in the world, but not, not Nineveh, right? not to that person. So really, this book, it's getting more than one thing done. It's simultaneously revealing to us the relentless grace of God, right? his compassion, his sovereignty. But it also confronts in us a self-righteousness. It confronts within our church an absence of mission, and our hope is that through this book, God, by His Spirit, would be working into our very beings, into our very core, a life of repentance and faith. 
and a life of mission. Right, that he would transform us into his people. And we're going to unpack this story in three words, just three really simple words. Go, know, and sow. Right? So go, know, and sow. So the first word is go. And the very first words of this book that you see in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, are the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that, whenever you hear that phrase, that is an exciting beginning, right? The word of the Lord came. That's supposed to push you to the edge of your seat. Because the best stories in Scripture, they don't start off with long ago or once upon a time. The best stories begin with the word of the Lord came. Right, let me take you on a really quick tour. In Genesis, the, the, the word of the Lord comes, and what happens, the very first act in all creation is the word of the Lord coming forth and speaking, let there be light. Right, and the sun and the moon and the stars come into being. Life as we know it comes into being with the word of the Lord. Then you get to the book of Exodus, and God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, and the, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, a guy named Moses, and he stands before people, and he says, I've got a message from God for you. Let my people go. And you've got to understand, when he says that, he's not saying my people. That my, it's, it's not Moses' people. It's God's people. It's God saying, you need to let my people go, or it's going to be bad for you. I've got ten plagues ready to release. Right. So we see that the word of the Lord comes and what happens? God's people are set free. It's an amazing beginning to an awesome story. And as you keep going through the Old Testament, you come to another prophet, Ezekiel, who's given this really wacky kind of vision. And the vision is, uh, it's one that symbolizes really the state of God's people, of Israel. And it's a state of it's a state of dryness, right? It's a state of, of lifelessness. And what he sees in this vision is a valley of dry bones, right? A valley of bleached corpses. And that's the state of God's people. And the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. And he says, listen, this is going to sound a little bit crazy, but Ezekiel, I want you to hear, I want you to say to the bones, hear the word of the Lord. So what does Ezekiel do? He opens his mouth and he says, Hear the word of the Lord. Breath, enter into those dry bones. Tendons, attach, come back to life. And the foot bone connected to the leg bone, the leg It happens, right? He actually witnesses the word of the Lord coming and regeneration power. Resurrection power comes through the word of the Lord. And then finally, you come all the way to the New Testament, right? It's the night before Christmas. And the Gospel of John, John begins his Gospel with, here's what happened when the Savior of the world came into the world, when the, when the Messiah entered into the world. And his words are, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that means God saved his best and most powerful word, for last, in Jesus, the incarnate Word. And the Word of the Lord, the very Word that created all things, the very Word that set His people free, the very Word that brought dry bones back to life, steps into time and space, comes to us, redeems us, 
through his blood, saves us by his resurrection. See, all the best stories in the Bible begin with the word of the Lord came. And that's what we see here in this book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And Jonah's a prophet, right? And as a prophet, uh, really the pattern that we see in every prophet's life is two things. There's a call and there's a response. God calls upon the prophet and he puts a word into their ear. And they have one job, right? One job. You have one job, Jonah. And it's not to say what you want to say. It's not to uh, give your hot take on things, but it's to open your mouth and to speak the word of the Lord. Call and response. Uh, If you've ever watched a a Batman movie in Gotham City, when the bat signal shines up into the sky, what happens? Batman suits up. He He hops into the Batmobile. And he gets into action. And, and that's really what this is like. The word of the Lord, it, it comes to the prophet Jonah. And God is saying, Jonah, suit up. Go forth to Nineveh. A call and response. But what do we see here? Verse 2, God says, get up and go. Verse 3, it says, he got up and fled. Get up and go. He got up and fled. He doesn't go where God commands. He goes the other way. And this is so often the case for you and I, isn't it? All right, through deflecting, through running, through outright disobedience to the Word of God, our response to the Word of the Lord coming into our lives is, is a no. Why is that? The first word was go. But often the response is no. In order to understand why that is, uh, we get to this transition point in this story from the word go to the word no. And here's the thing. Jonah's response of no, it's the loudest no that you'll ever hear. It is the loudest no. And just to give you a visual of how, how loud his no was, uh, I want you to look uh, behind me. That's going to be a, a map that comes up. So what you see here is... Jonah is at the letter A. And that's where, uh, and, and God is telling him to go to the letter B, Nineveh. Instead, he goes to the letter C, to a place called Tarshish, which is uh, in modern-day Spain. Uh, to get kind of in our heads, even distance-wise, what this looks like, is it's like God telling you, uh, hey, hey, uh, hey, Kevin, I, I want you to go to Brisbane. And Kevin, sorry, I'm just using you as an example, brother. But Kevin stands there and he, he yells, no! And he books a ticket and he flies to Perth. Right to the very edge of Australia where you, you can't really even go further. God asks you to go 900 kilometers this way, but you go 4,000 kilometers the other way. So why? 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 Why is Jonah doing this? Why is a prophet of God responding to the word of the Lord in this way? Why is he openly and brazenly rejecting the clear command of God? And uh, in order to understand that, we need to understand Jonah's backstory. He's a prophet of God. Uh, he's referred to in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. You, you don't have to turn there. Uh, but what we see there is that time the word of the Lord, it comes to Jonah. And, and that time, on that occasion... He takes that word 
to the king of northern Israel, a guy named Jeroboam. And the message is, you need to, you need to do something about your borders. You need to reinforce your borders to the north, and you need to protect yourself. That is the word of the Lord, because there is a nation to, to your north called Assyria, and they will destroy you if you don't do this. So the king actually listens, and he, he reinforces the borders according to the word of the Lord. And because of that, uh, Jonah becomes this national hero in Israel. Right? It's his deliverance of this prophetic message that has brought prosperity and protection right? and security for Israel. So he is an Israelite among Israelites. And... Uh, you know, at this point, I do need to tell you about the Assyrians. So you would have probably gathered that, that they, weren't, they weren't good guys. Yeah, they were about to invade from the north. Uh, luckily, uh, sorry, providentially, God's word came and protected, protected Israel. Uh, and so not only were they like Israel's kind of biggest enemy, but they were, they were brutally violent. They would slaughter people. They would enslave other nations. They worshipped a demon god. Uh, and on at least three different occasions, they attempted to wipe out Israel. Just genocide from the face of the earth. And guess what the capital city of Assyria was? Nineveh. So basically nobody from Israel ever wanted to go to Nineveh. This is what one Assyrian king said, you know, almost offhandedly about their practices. This is what he says. Many of the captives I've burned in a fire. Many I took alive. For some, I cut off their hands to the wrists. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I gouged out the eyes of many soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. One scholar calls... Uh, the Assyrians, the Nazis of the ancient Near East. So you can see why Jonah's response is like a screaming no. Not only would it be incredibly dangerous for him to go to Nineveh, the, the territory of his enemies, but the very idea that God would call these guys, right, these sick, deranged, even evil people, Give him a chance for repentance, possibly save them. That's no, God. No. And God is asking Jonah to do something that is beyond hard. It's beyond difficult. Like every fiber of his being, every every bone in his body is screaming out, there's no way I'm going to do that. And I want to think uh, about this in terms of, of our own lives as followers of Jesus, what happens when we say no to God? How does that play out exactly? I think there are two common ways. The first is something called uh, confirmation bias, right? Confirmation bias. And what that really means is you look for circumstances, right? You favor ways that support the way that you want to go, even if that way, even if that direction is away from the call of the Lord. It's away from the word of the Lord. It's away from the direction that God is calling you to go to. You see, Jonah doesn't immediately stand there and 
say no and stay put and just yell, I'm not going to do it. He takes the time and, and the effort and he goes down to Joppa and he looks at a boat and he asks, oh, I wonder where this is headed. And he's told, Tashish. And he looks in his pocket and what do you know? He's got $30 and the fare is $30. And he's thinking, this is like, this can't be a coincidence. And he's thinking, I've, I've never been to Tashish. There are probably like people there as well who God loves, who God wants to save. There are probably unbelievers there as well who God cares about. So I'll, I'll, I'll go there instead. I'll tell them the word of the Lord, but, but I don't care for the Ninevites. I, I'm not going to go there. And you can almost see the rationalizations that are kind of playing out through his mind as he brings himself gradually to a place of saying no, as he finds himself 4,000 kilometers west of where he was supposed to go. And it's often like that for us when God calls us to do hard things, when God calls us to do things that we don't want to do, when God calls us to actually live our lives in accordance with what his word says, right? To, to fight sin, to forgive, to love the Lord, and to cast down our idols, to share the gospel with others. We receive that call, and when we say no, it, it's not immediate. It's, it's very gradual. And what we do is we start to dress up our preferences as providences of God. And we look for ways to convince ourselves that we are going the right way, uh, even if that way is away from the Lord. I think what goes hand in hand with this kind of confirmation bias that we're all susceptible to is we look for inner peace, which is the second way that we kind of say no. We look for inner peace as a goal. You know, I, I know many of us have really hectic lives and busy schedules and uh, none of us here wants to do anything that's going to make life any more busy, any more hectic, any more chaotic than it already is. So when the Word of the Lord, it comes into your life, when God calls you to do something hard, when God calls you to something that you don't really want to do, you kind of have a moment and you're like, if I say no to this, ultimately that will give me an inner peace. And you take that route. And if you've ever said to yourself this phrase, you know, I've, 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 maybe, but I've, I've got a peace about this. If you've ever said that to yourself or to, to others, you, you know that that is a conversation and right there. You don't really argue with that. You don't really provide an alternate point of view to that. I have peace about this, right? I'm at peace about this. But here's a question for you. Does God give peace? Does God give a peace to those who follow him? And the answer is yes, unless he doesn't. Does God give a peace to those who follow him? Yes, unless he doesn't. The answer is yes, he gives a peace sometimes when we're in the will of God, unless he doesn't. And, you know, I want to look at two examples of this. First of all, uh, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. So did he have a peace in the Garden of Gethsemane? You think about it, he's right there. He's in the will of God. He does not have a peace. He's trembling. He's bleeding out of his pores. He's saying, is there any other way? He doesn't have this great inner peace, but he's right in the middle of God's will. 
Have you ever thought about that? Or you can ask the Apostle Paul, when he comes to Corinth, he says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. It's not this Zen peace, this serenity. And yet he's doing exactly what God is calling him to do. And here's what we need to know. A subjective sense of peace, that is not proof of God's guidance. It says in verse 5 that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down and he was fast asleep. Look, Jonah probably never had a better night in his life when he did, as he did on this boat, headed to Tarshish. And he could have said, I have peace about this. I'm not going to Nineveh. I've got peace about this, so I'm going to sleep great tonight. But the reality is he's still going the wrong way. And that means for us, if we're running from what God and His Word is speaking to us, calling us to do, if His Word challenges us and, and directs us to something and we consciously run away, we consciously disobey, we consciously convince ourselves that we don't have to go that way, thinking that it will give you an inner peace, maybe it will. But it's a counterfeit piece. So we looked at two words. Uh, God says go. And Jonah says no. And so do we often. And the third word of this story is so. so go, no, and so. And so what? So what happens in the aftermath of running from God, running away from God? And uh, here are two things that I want to uh, observe with you in this text two things that happen when we run from God. First of all, running from God brings pain in our lives. Right? Running from God brings pain in our lives. Quite simply, Jonah is sleeping one minute and is drowning the next. And maybe uh, you don't like hearing that because to even hear that uh, disobedience to God, running away from God, has consequences. Maybe that kind of challenges your understanding of grace. But the reality is this. When we blatantly disregard God in our lives, it has consequences. It has painful consequences. That's why even in the New Testament, the, the Apostle Paul says, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And the point is this. Sin... It always leads to pain. Sin never takes you anywhere good. And I want to talk about our culture for a second, just our culture. Because you see, there's a Christianity in our culture that promises that you can have God and He will not make uh, any demands on your life. And he won't really ask you to do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, anything that you don't really want to do. The only thing that He'll ask you to do is to be happy, to be secure, to be content. And that's what ultimately God wants for you. But that kind of cult cultural Christianity that I think many of us have uh, fallen into at various times, here's the thing, there's no Christianity like that in the Bible. A Christianity that leaves you in charge, that's, that's not a Christianity at all. 
See, New Testament Christianity says, I lived my life for myself before, and then my eyes were opened to the Savior who died for me. And now I'm no longer my own. I belong to Him. I'm not living for myself anymore. I live for Him. Right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's New Testament Christianity. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And as a Christian life, it's not this carefree life. It's actually very costly, right? And, and you guys all know that. You guys know that Christianity and following Jesus, it, it's not free. It's not just nothing. You guys know that it's costly. But if you think about it, nothing is more costly than not following Him. Nothing is more insane than treating God, the sovereign king and creator of our lives, who loves us and who has a good plan for our lives as ignorable, as a life consultant, to, to essentially say, God, there, there are parts of my life that you're welcome to, but there are parts that you're not. God, there are things that I welcome you to change, but there are other things that you're not welcome to change. That is insanity. And God is too glorious to be ignored. And we see that in the text today. A sovereign God who cannot be disregarded. A sovereign God who cannot be ignored. He hurls the sea like a javelin, like a spear. That's the, that's the Hebrew use of uh, the, the, the word throw that we see here, at Jonah. See, God is too wise and He loves us too much just to be our sidekick. And when we run away from God, when we are disobedient to His Word, it does bring pain into our lives. So that's the first consequence. Uh, secondly, running from God, it always ends in futility. Right? So on the ship we know a storm comes. It's a, it's a, it's a massive storm and these pagan sailors who don't know God and they're on the boat and they're praying to every God that comes to mind. They're just chucking names out there, every name that they can think of to try and get out of this mess. And they're just, they're just trying to figure out what has happened to us or what has brought the storm upon us. And then the captain goes down to where Jonah's chilling and sleeping and resting and he says, get up. And Jonah comes up and it doesn't take him very long to realize that this storm actually has nothing to do with the sailors and that has everything to do with his disobedience. And it becomes really clear that he is the reason, he's the problem. And so in verse 12, Jonah says to them, hey, pick me up, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, because I know it, this, what's happening right now, this great tempest, it's because of me. It's come upon you because of me. And what do we see here? We see a man who's ready to die. And as a last-ditch effort to perhaps hope that God would spare, at the very least, the lives of these pagan sailors, he tells them, hey, just, just throw me overboard. Just chuck me overboard. And here's the funny thing. Even in that moment, the sailors, they're not willing to do that. They have some semblance of hope. They say, you know, we'll just try to row harder. We'll just try to, 
use some elbow grease and, and just use our muscles. We'll try to row hard at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. And it's a, there's the saying of Jonah, basically, you say you're the guy who caused this, but we don't want you to die. We don't want you to die. We, we don't want innocent blood on our hands. But eventually, they're hard rowing, they're their strength, it's not enough. And so they throw Jonah overboard and he sinks into the depths of the sea. Uh, you, in chapter 2, you read that seaweed wrapped around his head and he's just sinking like a stone. And then all of a sudden, the waters around the boat go calm and the storm disappears. And the sailors worship the Lord. They worship Yahweh while Jonah sinks into the depths of the ocean. And this is what we do all the time. God speaks to us and we don't hear, we don't listen, we don't obey. We rebel and we run in every and other direction, every other way. We flee from the presence of the Lord just as Jonah did. But uh, just think about how ridiculous that concept is for a second, to, to flee from the presence of God, the omnipresent God, the everywhere, always present God. You can't run from his presence. And, and Jonah knew that. He wasn't an idiot. <laughs> he was a prophet of God. He tells these sailors to chuck him overboard. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I, I know who he is. He's the God of heaven. He created the seas and the dry land. He knows that there's no running from the presence of God. And if you know the Lord, so do you. If you're running, you know that there is no running from the presence of God. It's futile. It always ends in futility. So running from God brings pain to our lives and it always ends in futility. I want to add one more thing. But God pursues us in our running away from Him. God pursues us in, in our running away from Him. God pursues us in our disobedience. This whole time, we've seen almost this back and forth kind of dynamic between God and Jonah. It's like a chess match. You don't need to know how to play chess, but, you know, God does a move, and then Jonah does something else. Jonah does this, but God does that. It's moves and it's counter moves. God says, Jonah, go east. Jonah goes west. Jonah says, I found the boat. I've caught the boat. For, I can pay for it. I'm going to go. God says, I own the boat. I own the sea. I own the fish. And we get to this uh, climactic and iconic verse, verse 17. It's the verse that we all know the story for. Look at it with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So those, those are the two lines that are dedicated to the fish in this book. And the Lord appointed a great fish. And here's what this means. This fish is not a means of judgment or punishment. This fish is a means of salvation. So Jonah is already underwater. He's got seaweed wrapped around his head. He's sinking like a stone. He's going to die. And here comes the fish. 
And what's, what, what changes Jonah? What actually enables him to respond to the call of the word of, of the Lord and go to Nineveh, which we're going to get into over the next few weeks? Uh, it's not because of some nasty three-day timeout in the belly of a fish, but it's God saying, Jonah, when you wanted to waste your life and waste your calling, even when you wanted to spend your time hating the people that I want to save, even when you were ready to end it all, right, to end your life, even when you were ready to die, I'm pursuing you, I've got you, and I will not let you go. See, the, the essence of sin is it's, it's running from God. That's what, that's what it is. It's to run away from God. But the essence of grace is God running after you, pursuing you, intercepting your self-destructive behavior. And that's a great theme of the Bible. And that's a great theme of this book that we're going to be looking at. Sinners run from God and God pursues them. It's not that we chose to run towards God ever. Every single one of us was running away. Yet even in our disobedience, God pursued us by sending His Son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we were supposed to die. And He chose to do that. And He was raised from death so that we too would have hope of a resurrected life and never be apart from God again. And all of this is because uh, not of anything that we've done, right? But out of grace. That's what grace means, literally. It's a gift. It's free. It's undeserved. And here's the thing. If the gospel was anything less than that kind of free, unmerited, undeserved grace, if we were saved, if you were saved, even a little bit, even a grain of sand's worth by something that you could contribute, right? Then there would be a limit to what God could ask of you uh, because you have made some kind of payment for sin. Uh, you'd have rights like a tax collector, uh, uh, like a taxpayer, and a government has rights, right? But if it's really true that you and I are sinners who have been pursued when we were running away and saved by the free gift of God's grace in the immeasurable cost of Jesus' life and death on a cross. If it's really grace, then it means that there's nothing that God cannot ask of us. Nothing. And some of you have been running from God uh, but here's the truth. You have not actually put any real distance between you and God. Because He is committed to you by grace. He's committed to running after you, to loving you, and to seek, to seek you and to save you. And there's nothing, uh, there's nothing at all in your life that is not under His sovereign rule. There's nothing in your life that you can hide from God who is ultimately and altogether good. So uh, let me ask you this question. Do you, do you have this word of the Lord from the God who relentlessly pursues you and loves you and desires to save you? Because we live in an age of 
a lot of noise, right? A lot of opinions, a lot of speculation, a lot of spins, a lot of lies. It's hard to know what to trust uh, out there, a lot of confusion. And you and I, we, we need the word of the Lord. We need the word of the Lord to cut through the mix, to cut through the noise, to speak to us with clarity and certainty, right? For our church, for our lives, for our families, for our relationships, for our parenting, for our finances, for our marriages, for our day-to-day. We, we don't just need human speculation or innovation. We need divine revelation. We need the Word of the Lord. And we have the Word of the Lord. We have the Word of the Lord in this book. This is God's divine revelation of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the word of the Lord. How is God calling you? How is God speaking to you? How are you running away from Him? By unmerited, free grace. He has pursued you, and He's still pursuing you. So how can we ever say to Him, God, there are parts of my life that you're not welcome to. God, there are things that I'm just not really open to changing. Things in my life that I'm not going to let you have authority over. In light of the gospel, brothers and sisters, the only thing that we can ever say to this God is, tell me where to go, and I'll go there. Tell me who to go to, and I'll go to them. God, there's nothing that you cannot ask of me. And I pray that this would be our prayer together as a church, and our prayer as Christians, as individuals, as children of God. Let's pray. Good Father, uh, well, there is no one like you. There's no God like you. There is no one who actively pursues and chases after lawbreakers and sinners and those who would outright reject you. There's no other God or gods like you. And Lord, we see your relentless, perfect, unmerited grace pursuing us, overwhelming us, overtaking us in the gospel, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for many of us, Lord, we have been shaken loose. We have been renewed and changed by the reality of that grace, but also for all of us, God, we have been beaten down. We have been worn down. We have been distracted by the cares and the worries of our lives and of the world. 
and that relentless grace that saved us, that changes us, that calls us, that pursues us still uh, has become faint, has become a glimmer of what it should be. So Lord, as we go through this book, as we come to your word, as we just take time to think about how you are calling us through your word to follow you, to obey you, to stop running away from you, but to turn and to run towards you. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, you would enable us to live lives of repentance and faith. I pray that as we remember, as we receive, as we walk out in and practice this radical, relentless grace, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would be never the same again, that we would be more and more like the church that represents Jesus Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen.